and we're live zb zach brown welcome to the podcast good evening how are you yeah and for those listening it's not zach brown from zach brown band um we're not that big enough yet a little better uh, looking <laughs> you are he is uh i wish no no country in me just a little chicken fried um but so zach brown um for people listening that don't know zach brown is danny brown former podcast guests older brother um a lot of people say the cooler brother i don't i'm just gonna heard it once or twice i haven't disagreed yeah that's what other people say i don't that's not my opinion necessarily i'm kind of partial but yeah um so happy to be here so happy to be here. We had to reschedule a few times, and I'm so mm-hmm. glad to be in Malden, Massachusetts. <laughs> yes, sunny Malden, as they say. Nice and rainy out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's get in right, because I honestly don't know like what you do with a living for a living, what you do mm-hmm. with your time. Uh, so do you want to just kind of give me, like, what do you do, yeah. essentially? <laughs> yeah, so my uh, current job, I work at Boston University doing grad school admissions for their school of essentially professional studies, okay. um, and I do it for the computer science department. And okay. I've been doing this for three months. So you're specifically a computer science... Yep. And, and so you do you review the applications? Yeah. So I look at incoming applications. I make sure that their resumes are in check, that they have a personal statement. They talk about why they want to go to the university. Letters of recommendation. Make sure their files are clean. Um, and then I pass them on to our admissions committee. So I'm not the one that's actually accepting people. So I review a lot of applications. And then I also am the first point of contact for certain last names, my alpha split. Um, and so when people set up zoom calls with me, a lot of international students, we have a really heavy population from China and India. So I'll tell them about the university, how to apply things about tuition, financial aid, really that kind of first step to talk about the university, to talk about our computer science programs and to try to help them along on their path. Okay. And do you have any kind of like background in computer science or was it just kind of random that you got placed in that sector? I have zero computer science <laughs> background. Um, I have well, I guess the, most of them probably don't have that much background either. Yeah. So a little bit about our school, it's Boston university's metropolitan college. It was designed to be kind of like a, a place where if you wanted to continue your career, switch your degree from like the 1950s on like local Boston residents would go to take classes. So it's meant for people that, don't know a lot about computer science or administrative mm-hmm. science or gastronomy is another one of our really cool degrees. So it's meant for people that don't have a background. They have uh, prerequisite courses that you'll take if you are accepted, but I review applications from people that just graduated college, people that have been nurses for 40 years that want to switch their degrees, people that want to go into forensics because we have a forensic, you know, digital forensics program that I, I help out with. So Anyone can join, and that's especially good for me, too, because I know nothing about computer science. I just have the website up in front of me most of the time. I tell a lot of people that they have to take C++ classes, and I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Okay. Um, So what kind of brought you to this position? Because obviously, like working for a university, like reviewing applications, um, I wouldn't say that that's kind of like your average job that someone would think of. Um, so kind of like what did you, were you actively pursuing a job in like a university or did it just kind of fall in your lap? I was actively pursuing a job in higher ed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a master's in education is something that I've wanted for a while. And mm-hmm. because I go to BU, I essentially get to get a master's for free now. Just 
it goes on my taxes. I got to pay a little more in taxes. I have to pay for books and things, mm-hmm. but I can work towards a master's. And so I've always been in education. I graduated college five years ago. I signed up for my five-year reunion last mm-hmm. week, which was like very sickening, but also very exciting. <laughs> I know that happened to me with my last year for my high school graduation. It's just like, <laughs> we're getting old, man. It, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, but so I've always been in education. When I graduated college, um, I did two years of AmeriCorps. I served at a school in Brighton, Mass, where I was running recess for a nonprofit called Playworks. And I was like essentially a teacher for social emotional learning. Then I worked for a nonprofit where I was mentoring AmeriCorps members i managed an americorps program for the united way um and still very involved in education i've always loved being in schools but never really want to be a teacher i think there's way too much testing right now i love being with the kids um but just in a classroom is not the educational setting that i want so i've tried the nonprofit. i tried being in a school i like them but i still like something more i like that mentoring so i thought higher ed could be a really good fit so i knew i needed to transition i was living at home in haverhill mass for a while and wanted to to move back into the city so i found this job at bu um and it's been great it's it's good to be in higher ed i'm taking a class right now um on thursday nights so it's i think this could be the fit within education i don't know how many more tries i get now that i'm turning 27 soon so yeah yeah and that's something that's really awesome that both like universities do it um Places like actually, former podcast guest uh, Chris Knuckles, he's getting his um, master's degree paid through the army. Like he's going to serve in the, in the army once he's out, and he's mm-hmm. just becoming a dentist. So he just has to be a dentist in the army for I forget how many. I think it's like four or five yeah. years after he graduates, and then he's like free, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have to pay a dime of his tuition. Yeah. Um. So I do think it's really cool that there's different programs out there that allow people to get like graduate level courses and then obviously there's a lot of like tuition money and stuff for undergraduate as well yeah the tuition remission was part of the the big reason for me to join bu most of the i'm working towards a master's in higher education um policy and administration now and that's what most of the people that i work with uh, have that master's from bu and it's like you take a class a semester you have to take eight courses to get the program so if i stay at the job for about two years take two court like can take two courses a semester. I'm just taking one right now to mm-hmm. remember how to write. Um, then I'll, I'll have a, essentially a free master's, you yeah. know, and that would otherwise be about $30,000. So mm-hmm. can't really pass that up. Yeah, no. That, and that's a huge, uh, I get benefit. You could say like, obviously you're getting a base salary and stuff, but that's a huge benefit that a lot of jobs don't necessarily offer. Yeah. I work with a lot of people that, are applying because you know they work for a company that can sponsor them for like 15 percent off or mm-hmm. something like that but to get a completely free master's when i have to even apply to the program really i just have to send in an application um it's it's totally worth it and so it, it makes up for maybe some other benefits that you know, bu has great benefits um but this this is better than than most other jobs and higher ed seems like a really really good fit for me a good mix of mentoring being involved in education dei policy um so really enjoying it so far Mm-hmm. And so going back to uh, your kind of like experience in education. So you said you didn't really like like a classroom setting where it's you and 20 or so students. Did do you have any kind of experience and like kind of expand more on why you didn't necessarily like that? Yeah. So 
when I, so just going back to college, I always thought I wanted to be involved in politics. That's what all of my summer internships were about. But I also ran an after school program um, during my time at Providence College. And I really enjoyed that. I liked the freedom of it. I thought there was still learning, but it was giving kids an opportunity to go somewhere else um, and do some cool activities, you know, once a week after school. So education was always something cool that I, I knew I had a kind of niche for, you know, not a lot of males are in schools all the time and I really click with kids. Um, so after I graduated, I was a, a paraprofessional at a private special ed school and I always really enjoyed the support part of it. I don't like writing the lessons. I don't like designing the day and being the one responsible. I really don't like a lot of public school testing. I think there's too much testing. It stresses kids out. It isn't equitable to a lot of different schools um, and a lot of different kids, especially like inner city Boston. Um, and so like at my AmeriCorps spot for two years, I was playing kickball every day. Like mm -hmm. I was playing dodgeball. I was teaching kids how to coach and be a mentor. And I liked that aspect of education. Like I liked how I was teaching some side lessons and life lessons, not necessarily two plus two equals four. And this is how you take a test. This is how you prepare for, um, you know, the Boston high school entrance exam. So it's, it's a lot of work to be a teacher nowadays, especially with, and I'm really happy I made the decision, especially with COVID and mm -hmm. masks and all the virtualness yeah. of it. Um, it's a lot of responsibility and you need a lot of passion to be a teacher. And I have that passion for education. I have that passion for seeing kids succeed, but it would not have translated into the classroom. And I know I would have gotten very burnt out very fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is one really big problem with just the American education system as a whole. Like you touched on like those life lessons, like learning things that aren't necessarily like math, science and reading. Obviously that stuff is important. Mm -hmm. to expose kids to like science and obviously reading and writing. Hopefully mm -hmm. everyone can learn how to read and write, but like those life skills, like you said, like being a coach leader, like a, even kids being like mentor to other kids. I think of like, there's just so many other education streams that not necessarily every kid is getting that. Because a lot of, like, I know a lot of my education growing up was through sport. Like I played a bunch of sports, um and just there's certain things you learn in like like with teamwork and there's all these other kind of other intangible skills quote unquote um that aren't necessarily taught like in the classroom yeah that's why the nonprofit that i worked for the served in americorps for playworks exists because they believe that recess is this time where for kids to connect and want mm -hmm. to have fun and learn from each other and there's a lot of learning that can't be done other than at recess it's where you learn teamwork it's where you learn how to stick up for yourself it's where you learn different games and you know respect i used to teach a game and then i'd say today we're learning about respect how do we show respect in this mm -hmm. game um so having a nonprofit like playworks to have someone that's dedicated out there to make sure things go smoothly everything runs on time um and get that learning in and it's also just a lot of fun so with with testing nowadays you know a lot of funding is tied to testing. Mm -hmm. School statuses are to testing. So a lot of teachers just, you know, the teacher, a lot of the time it's reflected badly on them. If their class is really bad on something like the MCAS test, which is the, the standardized test for Massachusetts public school students. So it's a lot of pressure to make sure that these tests go well and it doesn't leave a lot of time for... The, the fun things, the real life lessons, the things you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And it was when you were kind of like describing recess. I, I mean, it you are right in that like recess is a learning opportunity because 
it's almost like free time in life like it's almost like people going out to a bar on friday night like at recess if like you're beating up on a kid or like you can't do that like you can't be like saying things to other people that you don't necessarily know and so it's kind of the way you act i mean it sounds stupid but the way you act at recess can kind of transition to like the real life you need to learn how to behave yeah it it 100 percent is you know like they're i never used to be super strict on the kids like i hated putting kids on the wall and, and yeah. doing a lot of punishments but i also kind of let a lot of conflicts fly because i thought kids really needed to learn a lot of conflict resolution and how to work things out on themselves you know it's it's a lot if like two kids are fighting over a ball i would make them do rock paper scissors and then that's it like mm-hmm. if you won you won um, because I think they needed to learn some of that conflict resolution and how to work things out on themselves without an adult just standing over them and telling them, telling them who won. So what are the safe, positive strategies that we can do to help, help this get resolved so we can all start playing Foursquare again? <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's, yeah. That's, I've never, because I worked at a summer camp growing up. Mm-hmm. And so like I would, I don't think there was any time where I saw conflict and I was like, oh, I'm just going to let it, like, like that's a very interesting tactic. I feel like I, wish i thought about that before because you're right like you do need to because in the real world if you have a problem with someone like a coworker, or a friend or a mutual friend or something it's not like there's an adult there that can be like time out exactly like, like you're right you're wrong like you're gonna go to like detention or whatever like you have to kind of figure that out yeah so that's that is huh i never really thought about that yeah, uh, I miss it. I wish I could have played kickball every day, but not on a, an AmeriCorps stipend. It's essentially like two service. It's like the Peace Corps for the United States. So mm-hmm. it was just enough to live in Brookline with some friends and survive two years graduating college, but uh wasn't a sustainable career, unfortunately. But I, I miss those kids dearly. Still <laughs> talk to, I worked with uh, four different lunch monitors that were from different countries, and I, I talk with a couple of them every couple of months. We check in still. So it was really a, a transformative two years mm-hmm. um so kind of like looking to the future do you have any idea what you want to do with this degree or is it just like you really have no idea you're just going through the degree yeah so i've been thinking about that and it seems like higher ed is going to be a good a good fit for me i like this kind of mentoring helping people figure out what they want to do with their lives even though i still really don't know what i want to do that's what i was doing in my role managing an americorps program i was working with these either high school or recent college grads helping them get jobs telling them what to do with their schools helping them you know fix issues apply to grad schools things like that so i really enjoyed that aspect of kind of mentoring and so i could see myself going into like student affairs or admissions um helping students you know, admissions is tough because you have to do a lot of traveling. Like for grad school right now, I'm very just nine to five. But, uh, you know, student affairs, like a dean of students, you know, they take a lot of shit. But at the end of the day, they're really helping build a sense of community at a university and helping students grow. So there's so many different avenues that you can go in in, in higher education, whether it be financial aid, you know, the registrar's office, um, student affairs, student life, like so many different avenues to go to. So I want to really explore a little bit more of it. But I could see student affairs and, and helping students out, planning orientations, planning activities for people, um, working with parents, things like that. Um, I could see myself going more into, for sure. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it sounds like you really kind of like enjoy that like mentor role, like helping others. Mm-hmm. Definitely like a giver. Um, I guess 
um, kind of transitioning, I just this thought popped into my brain. Sure. Have you, and maybe you're not allowed to say on the podcast, you obviously don't have to use like people's specific names, but what are just some like interesting applications you've gotten that just like completely surprised you? Because you got it, I mean, especially if it's a master's like computer science program at Boston University, I feel like there's got to be like a range of countries, what people do, like incredible stories. Yeah, so um, I don't look at the applications too, too in-depth, and I look at them pretty quick, but I did have someone email me today an email that was completely in Spanish, (laughs) Um, so I had to translate that. Um, I think they were from, I think from Mexico, I don't Mm. really remember, but I was having to try to translate that, and we're a university where everything is in English, you have to have certain English-level exams, um to uh english proficiency exams to join the university if you didn't go to an english-speaking university so that was an interesting one to get i've had a few interesting zooms with people that have tried to show me like their applications on their computers and they're in india and they're showing me these projects that they worked on on like different airplanes and things and i'm like we have like a 60 percent acceptance rate like as long as you have above a 3.0, you will most likely get in. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like you don't really need to boost your application. But everyone's personal statements really vary. This is where you can put a little twang into your into your degree. And all I look for is just like how this degree or little twang into your application. All I look for is that like you have a passion for the degree. You make sure you type Boston University instead of the 20th other school that you're applying to. Yeah, um, And people have have pulled quotes from George Clooney. Um, people have pulled quotes about like space. A lot of people since it's computer science are interested in like the metaverse right now mm-hmm. and NFTs and things like that. So there's a lot of really funky quote starters. I love when people start with quotes because it's like, it automatically loses me. I don't want to read a quote at first. This quote did not inspire you as much as you're telling me it did right now. Um, so I, I wish I had some better ones, but I don't unfortunately do like interviews with students yeah. and things to really get to know them. <laughs> so you don't like quotes. I just think that they, they pull me out of it. Like if it's some generic quote, I don't really care to be honest. Like yeah. if this is a quote, you can't prove to me in this 500 word essay that this is a quote that you stare at every day yeah. and make it worth your while. Um, a lot of people start their essays with like, Steve Jobs said this and I was so inspired. This is what made me want to do computer science. Like <laughs> you have to pump yourself up. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great effort, but I I don't really love when people people base their paragraphs um, or their papers around quotes. Okay. Okay. Um, and kind of, I mean, you threw, threw out a lot of things there, but just for people, because obviously you work in this field. So people listening, if they know someone it, about to apply for college or they themselves are about to apply for college. Do you have any other kind of recommendations as far as Um, what you should be doing? So I don't know as much about undergrad. Undergrad is a whole different beast because I work for graduate schools. So for graduate schools, like ultimately it it depends on the program. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of programs aren't as competitive as you might think. Um, they really want to make sure that you can pay for the degree is a big part for masters. Um, A lot of people are going into a lot of debt getting masters degrees right now. So it really helps to be able to pay for it or have a plan to pay for it. 
I don't know if it's always worth it to take out like a hundred K for a master's program. Um, really try to make yourself stand out in a personal statement and have good letters of recommendation. Mm. Um, we require a letters of recommendation from professors. Uh, it does not help when you get a letter of recommendation from an, from someone that says, I never met this person. They were in this 300 person class. They got a B. Um, and that's <laughs> have, all I know about them. That? I've seen that a ton. I ultimately don't make the decision, but yeah. I know that this will not help out your, no, definitely your not. application. Um, so someone that can really vouch for you, that knows you, can talk about your character, um, is a huge help for us. And I just unfortunately can't say enough about undergraduate because yeah. they process those applications. They take maybe 30 seconds to two minutes to read your entire college application, which is really screwed up to think about. Um, and so it's like, what will help you stand out? What are the buzzwords in your college essay? Because someone could read a really, one of my coworkers uh, used to work for undergraduate and she would be telling me like, if you know, you could look identical to another student on paper. And if you have one really bad grammatical error in your college essay, that might be what stops you yeah. from getting to the university and the other person getting in. Um, so how do you make yourself stand out? People that also do a lot of outreach to me and I build a relationship with, I'm going to put a lot more time into their application and really help them out too. Um, so the more time you can put into it, the more that you, you can stand out and show that you can pay for it uh, are some really big tips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is kind of like you said, like the fact that you can pay for it because graduate school is like expensive, very expensive and obviously depends on the program. Um, but I feel that it definitely is kind of a main thing and there are avenues for you to pay for it. But obviously student loans, especially in this country, the student loan debt has gone kind of astronomically up in the last however many years. Yeah. Um, it's, for a master's, like it's, I didn't want to get a. I've always wanted to get a master's in education. Never wanted to do it. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with it, and so that with the undergraduate, I don't have a ton of undergraduate debt compared to maybe some other people around the country. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to pile on another forty k to that just to have a master's. Where ultimately, in like the field of education, it might not help me make a ton more money right away, anyways. For higher education, like to work in higher education, I will need a master's. If I really want to rise up in the ranks and things, I will need a master's for sure. Um, So that's an example of like where it's necessary, but um, it's, it it really depends on what the master's is in and what you want to do with it, because it's not always going to be as helpful as you, you think for our programs where we do like data analytics, computer information systems, a lot of it work, software development, people want to make apps. We also do health informatics, which is like the the data side of hospitals, which is really cool. Okay. There's a big need for jobs in those fields right now. People come out making like 130 to 150k. Wow. Um, so it's it's worth it for sure, especially from people from international um, universities that want to come to the U.S. and really start making a lot of money. Um, you know, if you're if you're really thinking practically about that and you have a passion for computers, uh, unlike myself then um it is a good route to go yeah so that's for all the we do have some international listeners so if anyone out there is interested in uh computer science hit up hit up zb at bu yeah i'll uh, <laughs> i'll give you some very basic information um yeah and so you mentioned it was health informatics health informatics informatics yeah that's huge there's i have a friend in uh vermont uh, 
the UVM like health medical center and they work in that mm-hmm. kind of field. And it's, it's crazy. Well, cause it's, I mean, it's so strange, like how the medical system is set up and that like certain doctors can't talk to like the hospital or like the hospital can't like talk to the doctors. So I'm not really like super familiar with that field, but I feel like that's really important and that there's a lot of things in health with data that we can, if you share data more freely and you have access to more data then we can help save more lives and obviously that helps everyone. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's probably our least applied to um, degree. I only yeah. maybe have like three or four applicants a month that are going for it. But a lot of the people that are applying to it are nurses that are burnt out that then want to just go into the, the office type setting of a, of a hospital mm-hmm. um, or even doctors that just want more information on data and how to use data to better help their patients. That's what a lot of our applicants are. There's people that so are already in the systems that just want the data side of it because it's so prevalent. You know, the more I have a lot of friends that are in med school um, or are doctors, you know, it's so it's becoming more and more data driven to try to be efficient. Um, So you can have like a virtual meeting or something and just talk Mm -hmm. to people about a couple things. I don't know as much about it as maybe I should, um, but it seems people are it's it's more and more of a need. So a lot of nurses and doctors and people have been coming to us saying like that they want to be more knowledgeable on the subject. And so they're getting this master's. Okay. So it's, so to get this right, there are some doctors and nurses that are flipping completely, but then there's others that just get the masters for general knowledge in the field. Yeah. Like okay. a lot of people that do, um, uh, a, a mass, uh, a, an MD at BU med school, they're working towards this. So they have this, huh. like they have some type of dual program or yeah. they can work on it on the side. Um, Kind of like how a lot of doc- or not a lot, I don't know the numbers on it at all, but some doctors will do like a, an MD and a master's in public health. Some are doing the health informatics instead of like public health. So mm-hmm. they're working on dual degree and you're already doing enough studying at that point. Any more classes isn't going to hurt you too much. Yeah. Huh. That's a very cool idea. I mean, it makes sense. It's just like, like I'm in the marketing field and a lot of people will like major in marketing and then like data, like marketing data, like mm-hmm. analytics or like marketing analytics. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense. And obviously in today's world, data is, there's more data on everything and you need to be able to organize it and understand what what's happening from it. And you can help, hopefully, like I said, we can help save more p- people's lives with that. Yeah, that's that's the hope. And this degree was started, I think, like two or three years ago. So it's fa- fairly new um, because they realize, you know, that there's this need mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Um. And also going back, and I have another thing that kind of, I never really thought about this, that you, is it to work in higher education, you have to have a master's or is it one of those things that just like kind of helps you along the way? Cause you mentioned that and it kind of makes sense to me that like, if you're working for a university that you should be more educated than just necessarily an undergraduate, but I don't know how like strict that is a lot of the roles that I was applying to, even if they were pretty entry level, were saying masters required. Now, really? a lot of people just say that like to do the job that I have right now, you do not need a master's. Yeah. Um, eventually though, higher ed is a very closed off field. And from the networking that I've done and talking to people that were in it when I was applying to jobs, you know, I have a friend that works at Suffolk friend that worked at BU. Um, it seems like a master's is really necessary to, to continue the climb up the ranks. You know, you kind of have to prove you have this additional, education if you're working in an education field 
you know, like you have to have a master's to be a teacher um, in, in Massachusetts within five years of you starting your teaching role, you need a master's. Um, so it isn't a requirement per se, but it seems like kind of a culture thing where most people have them. Um, and so if I really want to continue to rise up the ranks, it's something that I'll need to. Um, so got to keep taking these classes. Mm-hmm. Just got to keep grinding them out. Keep grinding <laughs> Thursdays. Every Thursday night? Every Thursday night until April 28th. What's what's the current class on? It is uh, Justice and Diversity in Education. Okay. So, so is it like history at all? Or it's it's it- a mix. It's, um, you know, like one of our textbooks is Dr. Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist. Um, we Which talk- I think I've... I've- believe i've heard of that That was a book that a lot of people were suggesting to read especially over um like last summer yeah um with, with everything going on in the country so it's a mix of history and like this past week we talked about testing scores and um achievement gaps and how certain students from certain parts of the countries don't have opportunities like some other students in in richer parts of the country so in the richer part of the country, when you have all these resources and tutors and things that can help you out, you're going to get better test scores. Mm-hmm. Um, so Boston has um, a system where their three best high schools are, are test schools. And it used to be just like the best test scores were the people that got into it. So people from like West Roxbury, um, Charlestown, a lot of the white students were the ones that were getting into, you know, Boston Latin Academy, Boston Latin School, because they didn't have as much going on. They could really focus on their studies um, and and get into these schools. So we talked about that. Um, it's a lot of different readings on, yeah, just a lot of you know systematic failures within education and what can be done about it, what the changes could be. Um, it's something that you know I've had experience with diversity, you know, in education, inclusion, all of these subjects in my in my past roles. But I'm glad that I'm finally taking the time to to really sit down and read about it and educate myself about it. I think it's something really important for people to know about, you know, it's not always the easiest class to be in. I'm one male and there's 15 females in the class. Um, so I feel a little bit of the minority a lot, but it's, it's people that are very interested and passionate about this. And so I love to talk. I love to speak up in class. Our class is really like discussion based. Mm -hmm. So, it's nice to be back in an academic setting talking about these things again. It's just like, I'm a working person with a life. I have to find the time to do like five hours of reading <laughs> for class a week. Um, so getting back into the student life hasn't been super easy. I have a 15 page paper coming up that I am not looking forward to. I read my posts and I'm like, this it reads like a text message. Yeah. Like this is not English, but um, it's, it is nice to be back in an education setting. So I'm not hating it, but I could see like down the line when I'm on like my sixth class over the summer, you know, it's the least, it's the least thing I want to do, especially mm-hmm. if I want to take like a long weekend, I have to go to class on Thursdays. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny what you, you said, like a 15 page paper is like the last, cause like I remember in college, like I was a comm major. So 15 pages is obviously a lot, but I feel like if I was in school, I wouldn't be like, Oh, like, this is just like impossible. But if I tried to sit, if I tried to write that today, like I would just not want to do that. I I have, I'm so scared for it. (laughs) I think I have a topic that I know we have to write about like a systematic injustice within some type of education system. So I want to write about special needs students and why some don't get the resources that they need in public school settings. Mm -hmm. I have to do a lot more research into it, but 
my mom is a physical therapist for the special ed department. I used to work at a special ed school, so it's definitely a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk with our professor more about how to kind of narrow it um, and start writing it soon. It's due in the middle of March, and I am so just scared to to write it. Um, but it'll be worth it. You know, it'll it'll be something different that I just haven't done in a while. Mm-hmm. And um, going back to kind of what you said about um like the discussion base like you in the class and like how sometimes it can be awkward that's what i've found that when talking about these different types of things like diversity and inclusion uh and like systematic failures and stuff like that i think the best the best thing we can do is have discussions about it and i think one thing with those discussions is like not not necessarily admitting you're wrong but admitting your failures and like your lack and either knowledge or just like, Hey, I like used to think this way or like, I do think this way and like, it's probably not right, but it's just the way I was grown up or whatever. Um, I think it's important to have those discussions and not being necessarily feared of judgment. Uh, my company, we actually, we've done like diversity and inclusion. Um, like not necessarily training, but just, bringing up different like like racism um things on like lgbt community like just having discussions about like topics and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um and i found that it's really helpful when you're just in like an honest like everyone says like safe space where people kind of joke about but it's true like if you're able to have a discussion and say like hey like i think this way or that way and i realize that that's probably not right um to say that out loud to like a group of people and not have them not having fear of judgment, I think is really important and can help kind of once you all have these kind of like shared, like sharing essentially Mm -hmm. um, you're able to kind of come up with new ideas. And I'm sure there's different ideas that fly around your classroom um, that you haven't really thought about or heard of before. Yeah. I mean, people aren't going to learn and grow in this space without, you know, messing up is my thing. Like people are going to mess up. You know, there are Mm -hmm. people of different pronouns in my class. And I said, called someone he, when they go by they, them, and I just apologize. And I make sure to use they, them now when I'm talking with this person. Um, And that's all you can really do. And I think why a lot of people struggle to talk in this area is they one really don't care about it. Mm -hmm. They're embarrassed to talk about their shortcomings. It is hard to talk about these things and it's hard to admit when you've messed up we yeah. all have blemishes I, in our I, past I, in this in this area yeah i don't um, there's certain times when i like like i don't want to share something because you don't i mean it's just like anything you want to save face you don't want to come off as a douchebag or an yeah. asshole you you have to it's it's a sense of vulnerability you have to come in being vulnerable ready to learn and you know we're talking about a lot of experiences of of black and brown people of latinx people in this class and i am a white male you know we talk a lot about power structures in the class i check every box of a power structure i'm a heterosexual white male this comes from a middle class family that's had a lot of things easy for me in life and a lot of other people especially in my class where a majority of people are of different races um they have the lived experience in a lot of things that we're talking about um and so their perspective on it and how we talk in class is a lot different than mine. You know, I've been in education systems. I've been in schools. I've seen it. I, I get why some of it works, but I've just scratched the surface. And so, 
you have to come into this class like ready to talk, ready to learn, and ready to listen. Like, I like to talk. Or we have a big part of our grade is discussion, but I really have to keep my ears open and to mm-hmm. hear from what people are saying. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the Boston public schools. Like, two of the girls in my class went to these Boston public schools and are, you know, now work at BU, um, and I've had to really work hard to get there. So, you know, people need to inform themselves. They can't rely on on others to inform them. Um, and you have to just be, be vulnerable in those spaces. It's okay to talk about these things with your friends. You know, it shouldn't feel forced. It's going to be awkward. Um, but in order to, to grow and be, I think a better citizen in this space, um, you, you have to use your voice. Mm. And one thing I want to kind of key on what you said is like, open up your ears and like hear people. Cause I think that's extremely important too. just, I mean, especially in a society like America where you have, I mean, just so many different cultures and people living here to have like those different perspectives and understand people's struggles and understand kind of like their cultures. And I think listening and just like consuming different media, whether it's like different movies and TV show and music, like I think that's really important um, as far as just not necessarily in the education space, like because obviously you have to understand your students, but just in a life's sense essentially yeah it's you got to throw yourself out there you can't stay with the same things if you want to be you know like this class will help me and things with work about better understanding people and where they're coming from you know like just for example like learning about different cultures it was lunar new year this past week we have a lot of chinese applicants we had no applications coming in and i was like why is this (laughs) because it's lunar new year you know and so you got to, that's like a very, very minor example for what we're currently talking about, but you got to talk to other people. You got to hear about their experiences. This is something we did in my old job at the um, United way in AmeriCorps. We had DEI trainings all the time because Mm. the whole point of AmeriCorps is like, it's a year of service, but it's also mostly these white affluent people that can afford to make $800 a month going into these poor schools and trying to save everyone. That's what like, if you kind of look at AmeriCorps at a glance, that's what it can look like. And, Mm -hmm. You know, I've mentored and managed some great people. That's not what we're trying to do or what my program tried to do, but it comes off that way a lot, especially if you're the only white person in this classroom and it's just the teachers, the power stands and the people that are white in the classroom right there. So, um, I encourage more like friends to, to talk about these things. You know, a lot of work have people that are like culture leaders or DEI representatives for their work now, which is great. Um, so it's, something I need a ton, a ton, a ton more learning in the space. I am by no means an expert. Mm -hmm. I have to do a lot more readings and and things like that, but it is just something that helps me feel like I'm, I'm being a better human and can, you know, go anywhere in the country and kind of better understand people or or just be open to to learning about them, not make assumptions right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, there are like, like some major, I can't think of actually any off the top of my head, but I've seen that, different like fortune 500 companies will make like whether it's like a diversity or like diy like like corp corporate officer essentially like as an extension of hr it's like its own kind of branch um which i think is very cool um and and also going back to your point of like teachers in america like it's a bunch of like rich white people going into like poor schools i i kind of feel the same way about like I don't really know much about the Peace Corps, but like kind of like organizations Mm -hmm. like that where you're like, oh, let's go build a school in like Haiti or something like that. 
Um, it is always just like I don't like because I like obviously they're doing good, but at the same time it's kind of like they're just coming and then like going for a month or whatever and then just leaving. I don't know. It's like a strange. To me, it's strange. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah, I I struggle a lot with that. Like, I am not the biggest fan of like charities and like spending a Sunday at a food drive and things like that. I think it's more for like the person doing it to feel good about themselves oh, and to feel, you know, it's it's all optics mm-hmm. um, for me. Like, so there's this TED talk that I watched. I was a global studies major, so I talked a lot about this stuff in in college. There's a TED Talk where we watched something about the Peace Corps where the person had an organization where they went to some village and I forget the African um, country and they were going to raise fruits and vegetables and try to teach the people in the village how to be sustainable um, and make their own crops. And, you know, they thought they were a genius. They're going to teach all of these African people how to, you know, grow things for themselves even though these people have been living in this village for thousands of years and figured it out and been just fine. They figured out how to eat otherwise, you know. And so they planted all these watermelons by the river and all these vegetables by the river. And after everything was grown, like a bunch of hippos came in and ate everything. Mm-hmm. And the people in the village were like, you know, the people that came in and planted everything from, I don't think it was the Pete's Gore, it was some like international NGO, were so devastated. And they were like, I don't know what happened, blah, blah, blah. And all the villagers were like, if you had asked us if we wanted this, we would have said no, because the hippos always come in and eat everything. So it's like, if if you want to help others, you have to talk with them and know like, what is it? What is your need and how can I help you? I have the means to help someone out, but you can't go in and just do something to say you did it. Like it needs to be a need. So like the AmeriCorps program that I worked for our fellows served in schools and helped multilingual learners or like formerly ESL students. Um, it's just like an an updated term, multilingual learners. Mm -hmm. And these students needed extra support. And our, our mentors were there to do like one-on-one work with them, homework, help, kind of help them have a better experience when this is a student population um, that gets pushed to the side a lot or forgotten. And school districts sign on to this AmeriCorps program. The schools make sure it's a good fit. So I don't feel like our fellows were going in and just doing an unnecessary task. They were really mm-hmm. being there for a student when maybe the student wouldn't have had someone that can really spend the one-on-one time with them. But but yeah, I think a lot of a lot of charities are really just there for optics and for rich people to to help out with tax their tax returns and to take a picture on Thanksgiving and said you gave back because you gave out a turkey in like the bad part of your town. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I struggle with a lot of that a lot because nonprofits do a lot of work, but they also have to pander to a lot of a lot of donations and things like that. Well, yeah, working in the marketing industry, I've worked with several nonprofits because. Um, well, my job currently is working with a lot of nonprofits, but I, I thought I like only wanted to do that. And I've heard from just different people in the marketing industry and then people in the nonprofits too, like the marketing is like somewhat centered around making sure that people see the good that the, yeah. the good that their money is doing and people want to see, like want that either like, I mean, you see it with like recognition with, it's kind of like you ever seen the Curb Your Enthusiasm with the Larry David wing in like the museum or whatever. I don't remember that episode. Uh, well, it's, it's essentially like there's like a new, I forget what it is. It's like some animal um, wing and like Larry David has his name on it. And then Ted Danson um, is anonymous. So it's just like an anonymous donor, but like he tells everyone. 
um, that he's the anonymous mm-hmm. donor. But anyways, it's just like people want their name to be associated with yeah. charity. People just want... I mean, not only that, like you give... 10 bucks to like whatever food bank or something that, I mean, that does bring you a sense of joy. Um, and yeah. not that that doesn't help, like, cause that does help people. Uh, but there is just kind of, I guess more what people could be doing. Yeah. It's, you know, your 10 bucks is like hopefully going towards something good, but it's when I was serving at this school, like they used to have corporate volunteer days where people would like take a day and, I think Fidelity was a company that would come a lot. New Balance was a company that would come a lot. And they'd come and do recess with us for the day. Like 15 adults coming and taking pictures with the kids because it was like a show for them. Like these little Latinx students. And they'd come for the day. And I always struggled with it because I was like, you're just coming here so you can take a picture with these underprivileged kids to make it look like you're doing good. Like you're really not doing good. You're making it. All the kids are always like, when are you going to come back? You're never going to come back. You're just pumping these kids up and getting them excited for something that's not going to happen again. You're making my job harder. I know how to run my recess. I don't know how to run it when there's 20 other adults. <laughs> it would always make my life crazy. And, yeah. and it was always just an optics thing. So I, you know, charities need to exist. Good works always need to be there, but it needs to be a conversation with the community about what are the needs and how can you best provide them for them. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine like just, all those like kind of older adults, like you said, they go and then they just leave and there's no sense of like mentorship. Yeah. Seeing them every week or whatever like that. Yeah. Just, you know, do a, do a little more research. If you really want to donate or you really want to give volunteer some time, do a little research into it. Like I, I volunteer and I help run a boy scout troop. And that is something that I know I, I need to be doing. They need my help. It's something I enjoy. I do it because I get a lot out of it. But I also am really having an impact on on some kids um, and and helping run a Boy Scout troop thrive. But I won't lie; like I do it because I love it. If I didn't love it, I wouldn't be doing it. This mm. troop would run fine without me. So there is a huge part where it's like I'm just doing this because I'm having fun with it. I get to go on free campouts and and skiing and things. But um, it is like a good way to give my time, and I know that I am making a bit of an impact too. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you're that was a good transition boy scout so you are an eagle scout correct i am an eagle scout yeah do we know the percentage of uh, americans that are eagle scouts i i don't off the top of my head i don't think it's do huge we kn- though do we know the what's the percentage of people that like do like boy scouts or, like, i'm not Cub sure scouts? it's, it's been know? dwindling a lot in the few years i'm sure you can pull up some of those <laughs> numbers um but the Boy Scouts of America have been struggling through a lot of allegations yeah. um, in a billion-dollar lawsuit against them in the last year. So the numbers are it's dwindling. billion-dollar lawsuit. Billions and billions Jesus. of dollars um, for for eight. some naughty things that happened um, across the country. So 8% of all Scouts. Are Eagle Scouts? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, yeah, Eagle... It took me, I was in scouts from the age of six to 18 and I finished the Eagle, which is the highest rank you can in boy scouts a few months before my 18th birthday. And you're not allowed to get it after your 18th birthday. Oh, so, really? so you have to do it before your 18th birthday. Um, and it, it took me a long time to get it because I was very disinterested in scouts for a while <laughs> after I got to high school. Cause our meetings were on Friday nights from seven to nine o'clock and I just wanted to go hang out with, hang friends. Out with my friends and go to the football games. Um, why would they do that? The, the troop that I was, 
based in in Haverhill was had a big like it, we met at a church it was a lot of kids that were like homeschooled oh. and things so it just wasn't wasn't my vibe but I knew it was something that was going to help in my career and I had put so much of my life into it that I wasn't going to stop so um, I I stuck with it and I'm glad I did it's helped me a lot in life for sure it's something I still keep on my resume yo yeah I definitely would I get I guess the the purpose of them putting the time that time so you probably wouldn't do anything on Friday nights, right? I mean, I don't. <laughs> like it's, it's not like I was going out and making trouble I, yeah. in, in high school, but like the way that Boy Scouts is set up is that like the first couple of years you go through. I think there's like eight different ranks, and mm-hmm. the f- up until about high school, you join when you're in sixth grade. A lot of the ranks are, you know, it's like knot tying, swimming, physical yeah. activities. It's like a lot of things that you go to check off. Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember how to do all these knots. I don't remember <laughs> a lot of the first aid. It's a lot of things where it's like in the moment you learn about it. Yeah. And then after you get to a certain rank that's called star, it goes star, life, then eagle. Then there's a lot less requirements, but they take a lot of time. So you have to hold leadership positions. You have to get merit badges, which are like specific ranks, you know, like wilderness survival or first aid. Um, you have to teach some certain skills. And you have to do different like service projects and volunteer a lot of different hours. So I didn't need to go to our weekly meetings because I didn't need to get these little checkmark things off when yeah. I was like the rank before Eagle Scout. I just needed to keep. I helped with um, a Cub Scout pack, so I like that was my mentor leadership position. Okay. Um, and I had to do like an Eagle project, um, but there was no. I didn't have a lot of friends that were in the troop. Like none of them went to the high school that I went to really. So there was no incentive for me to go to these meetings um, other than to just kind of like show face. Yeah. So what was your Eagle project? So um, in order to gain, you know, the rank of Eagle, everyone has to do a big volunteer project where you have to put in a total of over a hundred hours into it. Um, So I started mine by going in and a lot of people do like they'll clean trails. They'll make new trails. They'll like clean up a schoolyard you know, things like that. So I went to my middle school principal and I asked her what, you know, what's a need? What, what do you want me to do? And I ended up making a set of 30 geometric stencils that were like three feet by three feet. And I spray painted them on the outside of three middle schools in Haverhill mass. Um, so math teachers could go out and use them for like references or kids could learn the shapes during recess and just something that could be used, um, you know, for a lesson mm-hmm. every now and then. Ultimately, it wasn't the biggest thing in the world. Um, I've seen some Eagle projects where some people really make a change, but it was a need that the principal said. I got the okay from two other principals to do it. So we all got together on like a Saturday. I had a bunch of volunteers, people from my troop friends, um, and we were spray painting a lot um, for like five or six hours. We started mm-hmm. early um, and and got it done, and the stencils are, are not there anymore oh, that um, was my next question <laughs> they they have been wiped away because i did it like 10 years ago um but at the time it, it it was a need so now i get to work with a bunch of kids that live in boston um and try to figure out what their eagle projects will be oh so you're working like with eagle scouts right now i'm working with kids that are are getting towards eagle so we're gonna have to okay. start planning out what their eagle project will be yeah that's very cool that's yeah, very cool. it's it's I'm, we have meetings like every Monday night. I go mm-hmm. on campouts once a, once a month, so I go away. And there's a part of me that my friends are like, "Why are you doing this?" <laughs> but it's helped me to fall in love with scouting again because I did not love it for a lot of my time yeah. when I did it. But there is a lot of good. 
to it. And there's a lot of brotherhood. You're mm-hmm. learning some great life skills. It's a chance, especially when I work with kids that just live in Boston to get outside of the city and get into the woods and, you know, put your phones away and, and kind of hang out, make new friends. So it's, it's been great. It's one of like my, my favorite things that I do in Boston for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard. So I know two other Eagle Scouts, I think that I remember of, um, and they're, uh, I've never like, well, actually, no, sorry, three, because it's my godfather and his son are both Eagle Scouts. And then I have another friend. Um, but I mean, everyone, I've never, obviously, there's those stories out there, like you said, the billion dollar lawsuit. And I'm sure there's a lot of very like sad stories about it. But I personally haven't um, heard anything kind of negative about it. I did Cub Scouts. I think I got up to like, what is it? It's it's, it's like tiger cub, wolf, bear, bear, weevil one, weevil two. So I think I, I think I stopped that for bear. Yeah, it's like third or fourth grade. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I got into the weeblos. Yeah, um, which that's that's the only time I've ever heard of that animal is <laughs> the weeblo. Have you? A weeblo is not an animal. It's, it's not. What no, is it? it's um the the patch. It just kind of looks like like an arrow almost um it kind of looks like a mix of like a piece of corn and an arrow i don't know what it actually is but this is what the patch design looks like so i'm not sure what it is i'll have to google it later i always thought it was an animal no it's it it sounds like some type of funky bird but a weeblo is not an animal i can uh, i can promise you that huh learn something new well i mean the last time i heard it was whenever we would have like boy scout like troop the big meetings with like everyone Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean i had fun when i was in it um it was just like me and all my friends from my hometown like it was normally either my dad or someone else's dad was like the troop leader um we went on different trips and stuff um but yeah so from my experience it's a cool program and it's cool that you're kind of continuing on with it um like you said kind of making it more a positive experience than kind of your high school days yeah absolutely you know i've i've gone to do some awesome things we went skiing at loon mountain this past weekend mm-hmm. we went white water white water rafting this past summer really um, Where, I, where'd you go where we were, were in uh where were we somewhere by the white mountains um mm-hmm. in like near mount washington or um oh, I no, guess no, no we were in maine no elevation. not white mountains we were somewhere in maine the I forget what what river in Maine we were, so it's not the White Mountains. Um, I should know this, but it was it was like a four hour drive up. It was a blast. Yeah. Like, um, it's there's someone else that's my age that does it, so not like I'm just with the dads all the time. Yeah. Um, so like I hang out with him a bunch. Um, and next summer, all the older boys want to go ATVing in West in West Virginia, I think. And then there's like a, a scout camp thing in florida that we go like canoeing or something for a week so yeah. there's a lot of cool activities and this is a lot of like upper middle class kids in boston so they have the money to go on a lot of these cool trips whereas like when i did scouts we just went to one campsite in new hampshire yeah every weekend and then we did summer camp over the summer but there's a lot of cool opportunities that these kids want to do and it's especially when covid was really bad last year like it was an excuse for me to get outside and, and do things and leave my house so um, I've had a lot of cool experiences with it and, and definitely keeping up with it. Yeah. I've always wanted to go white water after like, especially it's out fun. West. Like how was it like a multi-day trip? No, it was like three hours, you know, oh, it was okay. like so it was very tourist, like kind of yeah. not like touristy, but like, 
you know, parents and young kids did it. We had a yeah. guide, so it's not like we were the ones really doing a ton yeah. of work. Um, it was pretty choppy. Like we tipped over a few times. It was a little sketchy at some point. Did anyone fall out? Yeah. No? A couple people <laughs> fell out. I fell out at one point after we hit a big lip. Um, yeah. but you just kind of put your feet up and float. And it was like, since it was family friendly, like there were a lot of times where we got out in the river and just like kind of floated yeah. along. So it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. I don't know if I would really want to do it if it was like, I think like the highest level is like five or something for it. I don't know if I would want to like do that. It is a lot of work and it's slippery. Like, um, it's it's a lot of fun, but it's it's a little sketchy at times. Mm. So, are you like the like head like the troop leader, or is there like someone else, and you're just kind of like helping? So, out? I currently am, but that's because our troop leader um, has been recovering from COVID for a while. Okay. So I was, and he was the scout master. He has a son in the troop, and he leads everything. Okay. And then I am the assistant scout master. But so like myself and. The other guy that I do it with are the interim scoutmasters, which doesn't mean a ton. Like, there's a lot of other adults that help out, so yeah. it's not like it's a ton of extra um, work. But I am like a, a scoutmaster. I have a uniform that I don't really wear because I don't like to. Um, <laughs> I almost saw one of my friends on the Esplanade while like wearing it, and I just kind of like turned around and, <laughs> and things like that. Um, there's still definitely some embarrassing parts of it that I think just linger with me from from childhood, but. Um, but yeah, so my title's assistant scoutmaster. Gotcha. 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 Do you have any like kind of want to become like a head scoutmaster? Or not no? at all. Not, um, <laughs> you don't want that responsibility. Year old, I don't want the responsibility. I already put a lot of work into this. Um, I love it. It's something that I, you know, I'm passionate about, so I'll continue doing it. But if my son eventually, not that I have one now, um, <laughs> wants to be in scouts and it makes sense, but it's a ton of work and it's not like you get paid for it. Like yeah. there's a lot of, you know, cause you're working with parents all the time. You're planning all these trips. You have to keep tabs on a lot of things. Like we have like over 20 kids in the troop. You're keeping tags of, of their advancement of what they're doing, like taking calls all the time. It's like a second job to, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So I don't need to lead my own troop just because I want to at any point, like most people that lead them either had a kid in it or currently have. So if I have a son that wants to do scouts, I don't think I would force them into scouts, honestly, mm. unless they really wanted to. Um, then I don't think I'll be taking over the troop. I'm already like drowning in a lot of the work that I'm doing now. We meet, we meet a lot about a lot of different things that go on. So mm. um, I don't need a ton of extra work when I still want to hang out with my friends and girlfriend on the weekend. I don't need to hang out with the boy scouts every weekend. <laughs> And, well, and you're in grad school, and, uh, and grad you have a school, full-time job. Full-time job. So this is already an extra like ten to fifteen hours a week at some points because mm-hmm. we meet once a week. There's a lot of work that goes into it. So, um, you know, it's like ten to fifteen hours if there's a weekend where that where um, going on a camp out or something. It's just it's a lot more work. So I don't need to run anything right now. I'll, I'll keep going on the free whitewater rafting trips. <laughs> you don't have to pay anything for those. Most of the time now, just, just for vol- the troop volunteer. Just, just guess. Yeah, blood, sweat, and tears from you. And- yeah, staying up late, yelling at teenagers when they won't go to sleep, <laughs> playing. Like I, I always will jump in and play like, um, capture the flag or whatever they're playing. Yeah. So, the wear and tear that I do on my body trying to keep up with extremely fit twelve year olds. Um, but yeah, so it's it's not like it's a monetary thing for me, but mm. it just is a lot of extra a lot of extra time. Um, at some some parts of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously kind of like 
you mentioning earlier all your like education stuff that's got to be rewarding too just like personally yeah especially when it's like i love working with kids and being that mentor kind of that role model type job but now that i don't do that and in a school like this kind of supplements that mm-hmm. kind of like need you know that kind of itch that i still have to do it this 100 percent supplements it so that's why i'm like i don't need to work in a school like i kind of get it out of scouts right now yeah so with the rest of your time what else what else are you into uh i like to do a lot of cooking okay um i like to collect different cookbooks um I am always on YouTube watching Munchies videos, mm-hmm. um, like Action Bronson videos, and trying out different recipes. I'm a huge like Dave Chang fan. So, have you seen uh, what is it? His Netflix documentary, Ugly Delicious. Yes. yes, yes, I've seen I it a love, few times. I love that. I've seen his Hulu show. I listen to his podcast. Um, so, I like to do a lot of cooking and. Um, trying out different things, mm-hmm. having my girlfriend test different recipes. Um, I just moved back to Boston a few months ago when I was living at home. I was cooking dinner like three times a week for the family mm-hmm. just because they'd buy the groceries. So I had no Might problem, as well, yeah. no problem <laughs> cooking it. So yeah, I like to do a lot of cooking and grilling for sure. What was the, like, what's the most recent, like crazy thing you've done? Um, today I did. So uh, Dave Chang has a new cookbook out. That's about like cooking at home and kind of like winging recipes. Like I am very bad at following recipes. I like to just feel things out. Um, yeah, I'm the when same I, way. <laughs> it, it doesn't help a lot. I've screwed up a lot of things doing it that way. Cause I'm not a professional chef at all. And I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but it was kind of like a, uh, a Turkey meatball. That was like, it's like a Korean dish. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's like a flat Turkey meatball. So it was like ground Turkey scallions, a bunch of like fish sauce, nutritional yeast, garlic, sriracha um ginger like chilies so when you say flat meatball like, is it essentially like a- i put a meatball on a pan and i just smashed it until it was flat so, so it was like, like a, a turkey s- pancake yeah so almost like a smash burger kind yeah of, it was like a, like a giant turkey pancake and so i okay. ate that with like some rice and kimchi um so i make my own kimchi every now and then really yeah that's probably one of the the wilder things that i've i've made so, so I made kimchi a few times yeah interesting so i what what is nutritional yeast i've never heard of that before. it is some so it's like essentially vegan parmesan cheese it's so it tastes like parmesan cheese or it's, no it's got a big umami flavor it's okay. yellow um it's you know dead yeast that has been processed somehow to make it edible and taste good it's a big umami flavor so it's used in a lot of vegan dishes like vegan mac and cheese and things like that they'll put that in to make it yellow and taste like cheese it's kind of like a salty umami condiment um can you get it like stop and shop like market basket trader joe's really yeah you'll find it it's by like the the spices section and it's edible people put it in everything and it's my favorite condiment huh i might have to get some because i've never heard of it yeah it's yellow i just bought a bag of it at trader joe's yesterday they definitely have it but it's like really a big just alternative to to like parmesan cheese it comes in shaker bottles yeah i put it on everything eggs (laughs) I, I think it's delicious. And, and I really it, don't even know what it exactly is. Like, yeah. I know it's edible yeast, but it's not like you make beer and the yeast that you put in beer, like that's not, active dry yeast. It's not. That. Yeah. Is there any like nutritional facts to it? Like it has a bunch of vitamins and things vitamins? like that. Yeah. Um, it's not too, you know, it gives like this like salty flavor, but it's not like, like super high, high sodium. sodium. Um, but it, yeah, it really just gives this kind of like umami punch to yeah. things. I love putting it on, on like eggs and ketchup. I think it's like a great, combo would it be probably good on popcorn i just i, I put my favorite popcorn combo is 
black pepper, salt, yeah. and nutritional yeast, and a little oil. I put it on huh. popcorn. Yeah. Yeah, because I make popcorn almost not every day, but I make it a lot because I just I'm one problem I have is I just like snacking, so mm-hmm. I I try to like eat foods like popcorn that like has like not that many calories and like yeah. fruit and stuff like that. Um, huh. But so you, how many times have you made kimchi? I've made kimchi, I think three or four times. Okay. What's cause so kimchi is pickled, correct? It's, it's fermented cabbage. It's fermented. Okay. Yep. So what's the difference? Do you know the difference? Cause pickling is like with vinegar. vinegar. Yeah. So, so there's no liquid. So fermenting it like, I don't know the specifics of this, but a lot of time with fermenting, it is fermenting in its own juices because yeast is eating the sugar, I believe, and fermenting it um, and breaking down like the cell walls. So with kimchi, what you do and cut up a lot of cabbage and Mm. you massage it with salt um, to help break it down and then you pack it. And so when you say massage, does that mean you just you're literally getting in there? No, you're getting in there and like wringing out the cabbage with salt. and it releases a ton of moisture. Like okay. you can wring it out and there's like a pool of water at the bottom after you do it. Really? And is yep. this before you cut it up or this after? After so this is after you cut it up into pieces. And then you sprinkle it with salt, you massage it, you let it sit for a couple hours, you wring out all the salt water, you rinse it to get all the salt off. Um and then you mix it with uh, gochugaru, which is um, Korean chili flakes. Mm-hmm. I have a giant bag of those. They're like neon red. <laughs> and then you make a paste that helps with the fermentation, which is like um, uh, like flour and different things. And then you okay. add people add different stuff like carrots or scallions, um, different flavoring agents like an oyster, shrimp paste, a lot of fish sauce. Um, it's a lot of different recipes because it's, a regional variety in South Korea. Okay. So every region does it differently. I just kind of make like a generic one that I'll find on YouTube or in a cookbook, but yeah. great for gut health. A lot of anti, um, not anti-inflammatory, like I was about to say antibiotics, but um, probiotics in it. So it's, it's a great condiment. It makes a lot of work, but it can sit in a jar forever. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of my favorite things to make because it's pretty simple um, and I think it gives a great flavor and a great crunch to a lot of dishes. How long does it take from you have everything kind of like packaged up in the container? How long does it take to ferment? Like or does it depend? A week, about a week to two weeks. Depends on how funky you want it. So the longer you let it <laughs> ferment, the funkier of a taste it gets. So okay. like after three or four days, once you start seeing bubbles in the jar, that means the fermentation has started. Um, so once that kind of happens, then... A couple of days like after that really it it just depends on how you like it but it like up to a week you know it'll take it depends on the temperature of the room how much light it's getting like there's a lot of different factors for how long it'll ferment so it can take a while people do it like after months and months they'll make like huge portions of it and let it sit in like a cold place or cold place so it doesn't ferment um and use it throughout the year so it, it really like depends, but when I've ever done it, I just like leave it out for five to seven days. And after that, it, it usually works. Okay. And then do you, you have to, do you put it in the fridge after it's fermented? To stop or? it from fermenting. Yeah. yeah. You'll okay. put it in the fridge to kind of seal in the crunch. Okay. Okay. 
And you said it's South Korean because I, I, yeah. I've always kind of like kimchi you hear and like I've always associated dish, with yeah. like Asian cultures, but I it's a Korean dish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it was like a, you know, like a peasant kind of farming way to ferment things because when you do fermentation, you kill a lot of germs, so that's why people like yeah. salt, you know, salted meats or ferment and drink beer, mm-hmm. like things like that because it killed germs and you wouldn't get sick. So this was a dish where a lot of farmers were be able to take cabbage and a lot of their ingredients and seal it you know for a long time and eat something throughout the year yeah yeah because obviously cabbage goes bad in what like a week Very or two yeah. yeah so this was a way to, to make it last longer with some pretty simple ingredients huh what, what are some other dishes that you had like you said you had these like meatball pancake type things what are some other like common dishes with kimchi um it's always used as like a side at korean restaurants um okay. Kimchi fried rice is really big. There's a couple kimchi soups where it's like the base of soups that are mm-hmm. really spicy. I need to learn and do a lot more research into it, but yeah. I love it as like a condiment. Like I'll put it in eggs and make like an omelet with it. Yeah. I'll put it in fried rice. It can get really spicy depending how much chili powder you use. So yeah. um, it's something I love to, to have around. I'll either like make my own, um, which can just get very messy and it is a pretty laborsome process. Um, or I'll just like buy a jar of it that does the same thing. At, you know, like Star Market always sells jars of it. So um, something I, I like to have around because it's I love the crunch and I love mm. the spice. Yeah, you, you're giving me some ideas about things I should add to my regular staple. I, yeah, like I love to, you know, I have a couple mason jars and like a book on fermenting. So I love to make pickles. I love to make like pickled cabbage or pickled peppers and things like that uh pickled red onions is my one of my other favorite condiments pickled red onions and it's so easy it's just vinegar you know salt and sugar and whatever spices you want so i I have jars i have like three different jars in my fridge in my room of just pickled things that i'll use Mm -hmm. um and it's something quick it's easy it's good for you if you don't use a ton of salt and sugar um and i think it just adds a lot to dishes yeah yeah i've i've made like pickles like with cucumbers um and that's like pretty easy you just like heat up vinegar and other stuff and add it in i've made like bread and butter ones like the sweet ones and dill um i've never really pickled anything else but like you said like pickled onions that doesn't seem like that's that hard and those are so delicious yep you just chop up i do like i'll chop a red onion in half make kind of really thin little moons out of it Put it in a mason jar, heat up um, you know, a certain ratio of red wine vinegar and water or whatever vinegars I have, mm-hmm. a little salt, a little sugar, maybe some garlic and whatever spices I want to throw into it, cover it, boil it, cover it, the the onions, let them sit in the fridge for a day and you have pickled red onions. Yeah. So it's it's something easy and I think it's just like a really good food hack to make things really good. Yeah. Well, and it's just like different because like... You have like red onion, like whatever, but it's like something like different level flavor. Yeah, you don't need a lot of it. It goes a long way. They last forever. Yeah, something lasts, you can just yeah. keep in the fridge whenever you need them. Um, like I have a, a jar that Danny Danny had and he gave to me of like these pickled peppers that have, mm-hmm. I think you know been in there for like two years. Yeah, <laughs> and I barely use them, um, but they're there when I need them. Yeah, and they'll never go bad. So. Mm-hmm. Would you say that Asian, like the Asian cuisine, obviously there's like so many different types of Asian cuisine, but would you say that's like kind of your number one or? Yeah. I mean, 
when you say like Asian cuisine, like I know, you know it's so, so broad. Like that could even mean you know like there's like there's a whole episode of Ugly Delicious where it's like Middle Eastern doesn't even mean the same thing because like Syrian dishes yeah. are so different than Lebanese dishes. But yes, I do love to like play with like fish sauce and soy sauce. Sesame oil is one of my favorite ingredients. Mm-hmm. My favorite food is pho. I have a Vietnamese restaurant down the street. Have from you me. made that before? I have not. It's my golden goose of what I want to make, but yeah. I want to do it properly, and that involves. One, a giant pan, like a giant <laughs> pot, which I don't have. And you need to simmer beef bones to make the broth yeah. for like 24 <laughs> hours um, the way I want to do it. And it's ultimately like, you know, I always think like, I'm going to make this from home. It's going to taste so much better. Like the restaurants exist for a reason. <laughs> They're probably going to do it better than you can do it. Like, yes, you're not going to order every meal. You're going to cook for your own. But like. It's fun to make homemade pizza, but do you ultimately need a 700-degree pizza oven in your backyard? Is it going to make it any better? No. no. Like, <laughs> the pizza from the restaurant is probably going to be better than what you're going to make. Um, I would love to make pho just to say I did it, but, like, will it taste better than the pho restaurant down the street from me? Probably not. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of work that goes into cooking. I love to spend a lot of time doing it, but... I don't know if I'll do, there's some specific things where it's like, you got to leave it to the experts, like easy stuff. I'll love to do if it's in a cookbook, but there's a lot of cultural appropriation that goes into cooking sometimes. Like we just talked about kimchi. I need to read up more about like the actual history of kimchi, you know? Um, and I'll call myself out for that. Um, because sometimes it's like, you know, why is ham hocks and collard greens, like in the Southern cuisine, like big, you know, mac and cheese, things like that, you know, like, all this stuff tastes good. There's a reason why certain cultures use certain dishes. And so you got to give them the respect of why you do that. You know, mm. you can, you can make anything you want. Supermarkets have, you know, we can make most recipes. Yeah. Um, but I think these shows do a good job of telling like why certain things are made and it, it just kind of respect the culture of what you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is crazy with the internet now. Cause I feel like cooking has been so much more and with like TV and stuff as well. Like our generation, like we ha- we've had the Food Network since we've been kids. Mm-hmm. We have Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. All these places have like food shows and like food travel shows are like my favorite type of like, absolutely niche show. Like, yeah, like going to a different country and eating food the that best. I've never seen before. Like I just think it's the coolest yeah. thing ever. Um, and so it is for us. I mean, we can just see anything imaginable but like in previous generations before the internet it's like oh like you want to cook beef wellington like you have no idea what to do but right n- you have like now Julie child's doing yeah it. like or you have like certain it was like that's why like french cooking was really big yeah. um because like the french technique that was what was kind of the best the julia child's um mm-hmm. of the world was what what a lot of it was based out of and now you know there's these travel shows and youtube videos and restaurants are getting so much more diverse you know people weren't eating sushi regularly like 20 years ago no. 30 years ago now it's in su- like gas stations and grocery yeah stores. and now it's and now it's everywhere so it's like what's the next 15 20 years gonna look like um you know like i went to vietnam and thailand on a trip two years ago and i just ate my way across those countries like yeah i ate so much soup i ate so much <laughs> rice like i was like i want to learn about this culture by eating the food right now um and just driving around and talking to like local people. I was there mm-hmm. with like a couple friends, one that had lived there. Um, so that's, I think really the best way to learn about a culture and you know, what Anthony's Bourdain's big thing is, is like you sit down with a plate of food to someone, you're really going to learn about them. Um, and you're going to learn about like 
them through the food that they're serving you. Yeah, 100%. And it's a great way if you go to another country to like understand more about the culture because you're interacting with whether it's the person at the front that's like showing you where to sit or your server they come to your table you'd be like oh what do you like like you kind of you have that forced interaction with someone yeah and And even if you don't necessarily speak the same language you can still kind of like learn more about that person yeah and you can learn a lot about the histories of people through what their big national cuisines are like Mm -hmm. rice and a lot of asian countries because you know they have the climate and the fields for rice patties so rice is a lot of what they're cooking and eating because it's one of the most available things and it can keep them full. Like, you know, pho was really big in Vietnam because they'd have a lot of leftover meat bones and then they'd boil them all night to extract and make, like, the meat last longer. So you mm-hmm. extract the nutrients out of the bones and you make the broth. Like, pit fire cooking um, and a lot of, like, soups and things, it's, it's used to extend meat. Um, so you can learn a lot about the histories of a people, like, what their national cuisines are. Like, why is this abundant why is this cooked here you know Mm -hmm. so talk to me a little about so you said you went to vietnam and thailand yeah so so what because obviously that's kind of like not your average american trip so So what brought that the year after i graduated college so i studied abroad my junior year in dublin through a program at bu and i kept up with a lot of my roommates and things from it and one of my roommates from my abroad program was living in vietnam as an expat working for a travel company. Mm-hmm. And one of our mutual friends, another girl from BU that I lived down the street from when I lived in Brookline and we hung out a lot. Um, she was good friends with this friend that was living in Vietnam and she was going to visit her in June. And she was like, do you want to come with me? And this was like in that March of that year. And I was like, yes, <laughs> like absolutely. So I paid, I think the ticket was like $1,800. It was something yeah. ridiculous. Um, but I tagged along. We went to Chiang Mai, Thailand, and then we went all over Vietnam. Um, and it was the best trip I've ever been on. I think about it all the time. Some of my best my best experiences, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so what, what surprised you? Because obviously, you, I mean, going into anything, you have these kind of like preconceived notions about whatever. So what most surprised you about whether it was the culture or just life over there or like buildings like what what surprised you about yeah the trip? so some you know some things about the government in vietnam that i thought were really funny um because they still have like a lot of you know they're not like communist or anything but there's still a lot of power that the government holds that's not here so like if there's ever political protests mm-hmm. what my friend that lived in vietnam like we hung out with a lot of her friends that were vietnamese people in ho chi minh city um and she and is Ho Chi Minh the capital? Ho Chi Minh's the capital, formerly Saigon. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, like they said, whenever the whenever there were political protests going on, the internet would go out, and they would say that the internet lines were eaten by sharks. AKA the government would shut down the internet so people yeah. can't talk and join these protests. But they'd say it was eaten by sharks. So like, it was never explicit of like this is government outreach and things like like government oversight in the capital or. Or anywhere in the country, but it was, um, you know, there's a lot of like different things that they were talking about where the government still steps in a lot to make sure things are running as the government wants to. Um, so were they like afraid to say the government turns it no, off? No, they weren't. Or? No, they weren't afraid to say it turns it off at all. It was kind of like a joke to them. Oh, like okay. it wasn't like, you know, something would have happened to them if they said that. Yeah. But 
it was still something that happens every time that there's like protests. The the government could just shut the internet off to calm which, things down. For which a couple of days. like just like a ma- like I can only imagine like any protest in America and like they just shut the internet. Like I don't know. Yeah, you couldn't like it's something we couldn't even picture doing here. Like yeah. the government outwardly, you know, shutting down the internet to the whole country yeah. or like power <laughs> or things like that. So that was one thing about the government um, in Thailand. Um, a lot of different like Buddhist temples and things like that. Um, in Vietnam, you know, it wasn't like people were outwardly religious, but Buddhism was still prevalent everywhere. So I stayed on the couch of my roommate and her friend, uh, or not, or my old roommate and her roommate's friend who was Buddhist. And like, she had a Buddha in the room and that she would light incense to every day. And I couldn't ever point my feet towards it. So I had to sleep on one side of the couch because it was disrespectful to have feet pointing towards the Buddha. Is, do you know, is there a story behind that? Or? I'm not sure. You know, I, like you don't wear shoes in the house. Yeah. You're dirty. You know, dirt is something that like in Buddhist and in Muslim cultures, um, you try to be very clean mm. um, to be clean for, for God or, or for yourself. So could never point my feet towards the Buddha. Um, you have to cover up in temples and things like that. When we would go yeah. to temples all the time. Um, yeah. When I was use in, your phone, when I was in Indonesia, we always have, I would always have to wear like skirts whenever we would go yeah. to like temples. You'd have to wear like a skirt and tie it around. Yeah. Um, and one thing, like a big thing, like culture piece that I noticed were, white was considered beautiful so you would see it's like 90 degrees just sweltering hot and women were covered head to toe like driving around on motorbikes in vietnam and i was always like how are they not hot like i'm in shorts and t-shirt like sweating buckets and because white is considered beautiful because if you are seen as tan it means that you're like a farmer and less you know, like less of a citizen, you know, you're poor essentially because you're out in the fields all the time yeah. working. So if your skin is whiter, it shows that you are like higher status within society. Mm. So there's a lot of whitening products at all, like the pharmacies and things. Really? Women were covered, people were covered at head to toe, driving around on their motorbikes to stay out of the sun. Um, it's not like people go out and tanning and things where it's like, we think like tan is beautiful yeah. in America. It's the exact opposite there, yeah. um, which I thought was just you know very different and interesting it's like i don't like the word weird because they would look at us and be like tan is weird for us so it's like just a different cultural aspect um for sure and then um people (laughs) drove motorbikes everywhere and i have some great you know some great and very scary experiences driving on the motorbikes uh within ho chi minh city for sure so you did get on the bike and drive around yeah so my friend that lived there, that's like really the means of transportation. There weren't a yeah. lot of cars, um, but people have been riding these motorbikes their whole lives. So it looks chaotic, but like there's not accidents, you know, cause it's yeah. like driving here or whatever. Um, but there's just like thousands of people on the road. They're all right next to each other. And so um, my friend had one cause that was her means of, of transportation. And then our other friend would ride on the back with her. So I, and when we were in Thailand, we drove our own, bikes which was awesome but it was like a small town 30 miles an hour like very Mm. very controllable we didn't have to go too far any directions in ho chi minh city the capital obviously like huge city millions of people um we i was not going to drive there um (laughs) so they 
there's like the Uber equivalent in there. They would call a bike for me. It's called like Grab Bikes, I think. Yeah, that's that's the um, service I use in Indonesia. Yeah, grab, grab Grab Bikes. So they'd always call me Grab Bikes, and I didn't even do it for my phone for whatever because I didn't have service or whatever. Yeah. So they would call me the bike, and I would just get on the bike back of this bike with a man that was like half my size, weight and height. <laughs> hold on for dear life and just hope that he dropped me off at the location that was put in. And a few times he did not drop me off at the locations. And those were always fun to try to find my way back to where my friends were. Um, one time the guy pulled over because I was just too heavy for his bike. <laughs> so he pulled over in this random market and I had to somehow communicate with the guy to call me a bike yeah. to get me to the location that my friends were at. And I had to pay him and he was super nice and I was totally understanding, but like, he had to call me a bike. Another time, the bike just dropped me off in a completely wrong location. I was like sitting. I knew we were going to a restaurant to eat, but it was like breakfast, and this place was a bar. It wasn't open, but the people didn't speak English, so I was just like sitting at the place that I thought was correct because it was a restaurant <laughs> at least. Um, and then all of a sudden, like after a half hour, it's like I think something's wrong here, and my friends like drove by and eventually found me, but. Mm-hmm unreal experiences driving on the back of these things it was a great way to see the city we were going fast but i was holding on for dear life the whole time my eyes were usually closed and you figured out how to cross the street yeah um you know just like look both ways and <laughs> not a lot of traffic lights all the time um i'm sure as you saw like people yeah. are just very stop and go so yeah that was one thing that kind of took some like getting used to because in america like the cars they yield to you yeah but like over there, you kind of have to like you figure almost it out. like leap for or what's like a crossy road. Yeah, <laughs> like leap. <laughs> you, for, yeah, you go a little bit. Frog. You gotta wait yeah. and. Yeah, um, it's it's. I think something that people should do is to get out to some of these countries where it's a big culture shock. You know, like I studied yeah. abroad in Ireland, and it was like being in America a lot of the time. Like yeah. the people were very similar. It was a lot of similar foods. Like it was. I didn't feel a big culture shock, whereas in mm. like Vietnam, like I could see it being a huge culture shock. Like the party scenes. A lot of people like, you know, we're go to bars where there's like nitrous balloons, like the people were were huffing in the middle of the bars and things, you know, like it's just a different scene there. But it was something that I, I loved. I don't think I could live there for mm-hmm. a whole year. It's just a little too hot for me, a little too go, go, go. But um, learned a lot from that experience. Definitely had a big appreciation for Vietnamese and culture now. And I want to go back to Thailand because I only really went to one city there. Mm-hmm. What was going to food? What was some of the best food you ate there? So much pho, like a lot of soups, um, you know, some great spring rolls, mango, sticky rice, a lot of vegetables, um, but really a lot of like soups, like bone broth bases with different meats or different patties that were in them. Um, A lot of different vegetables. One time we went over one of the friends house that lived in vietnam and her dad had made this like vodka from this weird fruit um and we so we drank that it was like this really spicy vodka uh, i convinced my friends to get a pizza there even though all the girls were like you don't want vietnamese pizza it had like seafood and this really gooey stuff on it um it was what, not the best you know tasting. What it was i don't but it was not not pizza like we do um, in, america. in america but i enjoyed it uh, I'm just no, I curious. Didn't. I want to see what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, if you do a little like Vietnamese pizza, but a lot of vegetables. You know, like it's not like um, 
v- a lot of like Vietnamese food is like Americanized here. Like Chinese food looks different. You know, like we yeah. ate a lot of the same foods over there. Like a lot of pho, a lot of soups. Um, but the Vietnamese pizza was definitely not. Huh. Not the is same. there like egg in it? Th- there might have been. It, it. I remember a lot of yellow. I remember there was like a thick <laughs> layer of cheese and there was seafood on it. Yeah, it definitely doesn't really look. It doesn't look like uh, like Italian pizza. Or like yeah, not, a, pizza. not at all. Um, but it was a great trip. I want to go back there. You know, like we went all over Vietnam. We were in Sa Pa, which is this like mountain village at one point. We were seeing people like in rice paddies. We were like four yeah. hours up, up these mountains. Um, so we got a good experience of city life, but mm-hmm. also um, kind of like the country and, and the, the rural areas as well. Yeah. Yeah. The rice paddy fields are so cool to me because... I mean, in America, we have, like, cornfields and stuff like that, which, obviously, to them, is probably, like, amazing. But the fact that rice, like, grows, like, essentially in, like, pools of water, mm-hmm. I find so fascinating. Yeah. Because nothing, nothing really else that we eat, like, obviously, like, cattails and, like, lily pads and Cranberries. Whatever, like, do cranberries? Cranberries grow in bogs, yeah. Really? How long have you I lived in Massachusetts now, Avery? I don't. I've never been to a cranberry yeah, farm. So, uh, really, yeah, cranberries grow in bogs. Yeah, you can Google that one too. You never seen the Ocean Spray commercials where the guys are in the bogs? No, and that's bad because I went through the interview process for Ocean Spray. <laughs> yeah, um, cranberries grow in bogs, but I know what you mean. It's like it's grows in water. Yeah, I might have to take a tour of a cranberry farm. Holy shit! You're right. I never knew that. Huh, but yeah, I mean, it, and it's crazy just how much is that? How much rice? Well, at least when I was in Indonesia, I mean, just the countryside is just filled with rice paddy fields. Yes, yeah, so it's insane. The staple food for a majority of the people that live in yeah. these countries, especially in the rural areas, you know, it's almost like corn in America. Corn, yeah, or wheat. Like it's, yeah. it's the the cash crop for exporting, but also for what the people need to eat. Mm-hmm. So tons of lands dedicated to it um and can be used in such a variety of ways as well but it is like a staple and it's a starch and it keeps people full yeah um, so it's necessary yeah i mean i myself i can make like half a cup of rice or whatever for myself and i could get like four sides out of it yeah and keeps you full exactly all right yeah anywhere else you want to go not that I can think of. Or anywhere else you've been that's cool? Um, I, st- I would love to go to... Um, I would want to go to, I think, like a Middle Eastern country next. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would want to be like the UAE or something like that. But um, I will want to go somewhere to see that culture. Because I think there's a lot of bad things that are said about certain areas in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and it seems like s- still some great places to go. Um, honestly, like there's places in the U S that I want to want to go to first. Like I really want to go to new Orleans for the jazz fest that's coming up in a couple months. When is the jazz fest? Uh, the beginning of May. Oh, okay. Cause I'm going, my cousin's getting married there in April. I want to say the end of April. So yeah. End of April, the last weekend in April and the first weekend in May are the new Orleans jazz fest this year. Okay. So. I think she's getting married on the 24th. So maybe I'll catch the 
beginning of that. Yeah, know. it's like hundreds of artists in New Orleans yeah. is a city that I really want to go to. Not as much for the party scene, but for like the food scene and um, mm-hmm. yeah, like I I've been thinking like not that I'm getting married anytime soon or anything, but like see people going on bachelor parties to like Vegas and they just want to party and do all this stuff. Like I just want to go somewhere that has an unreal food scene. I just want to eat my way across, <laughs> across the city. So I really want to go to New Orleans to try different things like po' boys and all the seafood and oh, gumbo. Yeah. Um, Jambalaya. All of it. Beignets. Yeah. All uh, of it. So I, I hope to go there. Um, I think I'm going to end up getting a ticket for the jazz fest for the second weekend. So really? I really want to go to New Orleans and I, I hope that that comes true in May. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's definitely a culture where it's kind of, it's almost like America in a way where there's just so many different cultures that influence in New Zealand. You have, I mean, you have French, you have like Caribbean culture mm-hmm. there and it's just like a mat. And then obviously like all those dishes we mentioned, like jambalaya gumbo, like things like that don't exist anywhere else. Yeah. It's, like it's the Holy Trinity. That is like fascinating. Yeah. Like the, the Trinity that they have down there. Yeah. So, would love to to eat my way and drink my way through that city. And if mm. I can do it while listening to Jimmy Buffett, who's going to be there the weekend that I think I might go, who is like my dream concert, um, then, parrot, then I got to do it. Parrothead, right? That's Jimmy Buffett. Parrotheads, yes. Would you consider yourself parrothead? No. So I'm a wannabe parrothead, I okay. think. Like, I don't know that's, a ton of Jimmy Buffett. That's respectable. Music. You know, I know some of the songs, but for some reason, like, the, the party beforehand of, like, everyone in these parrotheads and bikinis and everyone drinking coronas outside beforehand like that party beforehand is just like since high school been something that i really want to go to and do and so when i heard he was playing at jazz fest this year my girlfriend had already gotten tickets i was like i'm coming and i'm crashing this because we <laughs> we are gonna go so is, um is jimmy buffett i mean he, he's, he's in his like jazz. 70s and i don't even i don't know what you would consider what that music is like, like island vacation music yacht rock like yeah yacht rock's a good I, I love the term yacht rock I think yeah it's so funny yeah um that's that's a lot of my my musical genres but um hopefully we'll we'll get down there for the jazz fest i haven't really been to like a big concert mm-hmm. been to concerts before but never like a music festival so yeah. this will be one of my first experiences to do that yeah and i feel like jazz fest i mean i've never been to like one of those big like like Coachella or something like that. Yeah. But I feel like Jazz Fest would be something a little bit better where those like big festivals is like, it's a lot. It's a little too intense. Yeah. Like this is where we dive in Airbnb. It's not like we're tenting out. Um, yeah. You know, my girlfriend has gone to like, she's going to Coachella this year, Bonnaroo. She's gone to like all of them. Oh, it's so just like not, a, yeah. not my scene. Um, would love the music, would love to party and stuff, but I think it's a little too much for me. I like to kind of, you know, like the Grateful Dead's my favorite band. I like to kind of chill really? in the crowd and, and enjoy myself. Yeah. Have you been to any Dead and Company shows? I went this past year in Saratoga. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think John Mayer does such a great job with them. Oh yeah, I mean that the fact that they got him, I feel mm-hmm. like not only introduced like younger people kind of to it because yeah. like, they're like fans of him, and so they listen to the Grateful Dead. Um, but obviously, he's just so talented. He makes makes those shows probably even so much better yeah like he's no jerry garcia but he does a respectful job to the jerry songs he is an unbelievable guitar player like my dad is a huge dead fan he's Mm -hmm. the one that got me into the dead um he went to like you know dozens and dozens of shows growing up or whatever and he went to go see dead and company he's very skeptical of john mayer um 
He was like, I don't know how he's going to be, blah, blah, blah. He's no Jerry. And my dad like came back from the show and was like blown away by how good he was at guitar because, yes, he's John Mayer. He's dated all these actresses and he's got a big <laughs> ego. But like when it comes down to it, he's an unbelievable musician. I mm-hmm. hope to go see him in March when he's coming to Boston. He's coming the first weekend in March. Um, but I loved the crowd of the dead, like just the culture of it. Everyone's smoking, enjoying themselves, just listening to the music. Um it's my kind of like music scene for sure. And I going to see a dead cover band in a couple weekends. Want to go again this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my parents. And then I have a couple aunts and uncles that were like huge grateful dead fans growing mm-hmm. up, which I feel like everyone was. Yeah. Um, and they all kind of have said the same thing about the dead and company shows that they were skeptical going yeah. in, but they loved it. And it it's awesome. Yeah, it's like two, you know, it's the original drummers because they have two drummers. Yep. Um, and Bob Ware, guitar and mm-hmm. and singing. Um, and then they have a fill in for bass and, and keyboard and John Mayer. Um, so it's a great time. It's a great show. It's a great summer thing. And it's definitely going to be like my summer tradition if they mm-hmm. continue to tour for sure. Okay. Well, I think we should wrap up to yeah. get, get you home at a reasonable time. It is yeah. a school night. It um, is. Do you have any last words for the people? Um, just, uh, I'm no Zach Brown band, but <laughs> hoping to still be a rising star. <laughs> That's good. Um, all right. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.